I, uh, I gave thought to this opening couple of sentences this morning, um, and there's part of me that originally thought um, it might be perceived as clever, uh, but I, I stuck with it. I, I left them here uh, because I don't think they're clever at all at the end of the day, though they are provocative. Uh, not provocative in you know some sort of offbeat kind of way, but provocative to think about theologically and to think about our Christian life formed this way. It may sound a bit strange, I admit that, but you and I, if you're anything like me, and many of you are, you and I are often guilty of sinning against God because why? And you'll have a number of answers for that blank, good answers. But I wonder if any of those answers would be this. You and I are often guilty of singing against God because we don't have a clear understanding of Genesis 1 and 2. That, you know, sometimes God gives me things and I write them down and I have to look at them. It's, you know, it's not like, it's not like I've got everything I need and God just says, okay, we'll tap that that you have and we'll just write that. No, sometimes God says, you know, stop for a second. You look at that. I love Genesis 1 and 2 for reasons that perhaps you love Genesis 1 and 2 or maybe for different reasons. I don't get caught up so much in the seven days as much as I get caught up in what it means to be human what it means to be created in the image of God. Even more specifically, we fail, we fail by sinning against God because we don't understand what it means for human beings to be created in the image of God. Genesis 1, and 28. I would argue Mount Rushmore verses of all the verses in the Bible. You get Genesis 1, 27 and 28 right, you get a lot of theology right. You, you don't get that right, you get a lot of theology wrong. We mentioned last week that commandments 5 through 10, beginning last week with 5, honor your mother and father, that commandments 5 to 10 focus on love for our neighbors, on those who are created in the image of God. 1 to 4, focus on God. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then 5 to 10, pivot. But as I've been saying each week, it's all at the end of the day about the character of God. Yes, 5 to 10 are more directly related to our neighbor. And the order, we talked about that last week, remember? And the order that God has designed into the universe and how it is that we're to care for one another. God cares a lot about how we care for one another. Even those who are our enemies, God's watching. And he wants, he wants to see his kingdom come and his will be done. And a lot of times that's where it plays out. Today we take up the sixth commandment. It's in Exodus 20, verse 13. In the original language, it's only two words. In our English translations, it's for you shall not murder. It is a commandment that at its heart forbids contempt. Okay, so in this 
theme sentence, I'm going to give you what it forbids and what it requires. Okay? The sixth commandment at its heart forbids contempt, both physical and non-physical manifestations of contempt. We'll talk about that in a minute against those created in God's image, okay? So the sixth commandment forbids contempt against those created in God's image. And what it requires, quite simply, is compassion. Forbids contempt, requires compassion. That's the sixth commandment in a nutshell. And we'll unpack it uh, right now for the next few minutes. We're following the same outline, the same format. We take up the first question, what exactly is forbidden in the commandment? And then second question is, what is required? But we've developed this, but first. But first, we need to get some things out on the table before we can handle the questions, what is forbidden and what is required in more detail. So, so the, what, the, the, the but first is a very simple question. What is murder? What does it mean to murder? Very simple answer to that question, right? Which is why this is a little bit of a tricky commandment because I'm about to tell you what murder is. It is to take the life of another image bearer, including ourselves, with willful intent. That's a working definition of murder. It is to take the life of another image bearer including yourself, meaning suicide, with willful intent. That's important. The willful intent is important because Moses is going to make very clear for us throughout the law that there is a difference in God's economy between willfully, willfully intending to murder somebody and accidentally doing it. So you, you get a passage like Numbers 35, Numbers 35, beginning in verse 9, is this extended teaching on the cities of refuge and how it is that God built into his society back in the day, built in this capacity for those who had, if you please, without willful intent, taken a life. They could flee to the city of refuge where they would be free from vengeance being enacted upon them. So God clearly differentiates murder from manslaughter. And though we don't have the time, you can look at Numbers 35, beginning in verse 9, for further teaching on, on that distinction. But the definition that we're using this morning for murder is to take the life of another image bearer with willful intent. And therefore as you can very easily see, and as we've been saying each week, and therefore, it is to sin against our creator, God. To take the life of another human being is, I think, on the face of it, very clear that it is a sin against our creator, God. Now, I'm assuming that your minds are running all over the place right now, and a number of rather large topics come swarming into your head. One writer says it, says it this way, no Israelite acting on his own could decide that he had the right to end someone's life. That's good. That's good. No Israelite, and by extension, you and me, no Staten Islandite, 
acting on his or her own, could decide that he had the right to take someone's life. Stated even more bluntly, you and I do not have the right to decide to take someone's life. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Now, I'm sure that even more things are swimming in your mind right now with regard to that. Yeah, but, yeah, but, that's why this little section is called, but first, we're clearing, I don't like that, we're not clearing away things, we're setting things, we're setting the table for us. The sixth commandment, in light of that now, and hopefully I can take away some of these thought bubbles that are jamming this room right now, the sixth commandment does not include the, the following. It does not include this. In other words, when these things are done, it is not a violation of the sixth commandment. And I can give you passages, and I will, from the word of the Lord that sustains this argument. The sixth commandment does not include a nation or a state carrying out God-ordained justice. You, your mind should run to Romans 13, 1 to 7, and the word there is clearly not a lightsaber to dance around with somebody. It is a weapon to take a life. And so if we understand Romans 13, and if you want to be refreshed on that, go, go back to the podcasts, go back to the videos, and find the sermon, sermons that I preached on Romans 13, 1 to 7. I argue from passages like that, as well as in the Old Covenant, that God has ordained the taking of a life by a nation or state in order to exhibit his justice. In the Old Testament, we won't take the time to go there, but it's just on the other page that we just read from in Exodus 21, verses 12 to 14. You get this idea. You know what? Let me read it. It's this important. Exodus 21, 12 to 14. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Now, uh, a thousand and one times I ask you the question, where are you? Where are we in the text? Now, there are those, and I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole just now, but invariably this, this leads to a debate with regard to capital punishment. And invariably, some will grab Exodus 21.12 and say, see, there's biblical justification for capital, just, uh, capital punishment. Maybe, maybe not. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, see, there's the intent. If it's not willful intent, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. Fast forward now to Numbers 35 in the city of refuge. But if a man willfully, see the differentiation? If he willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him away from my altar that he may die. So this is God's providential arrangement in this theocracy in the ancient Near East, in the times of Moses, where God ordains the carrying out of justice. But he does not leave it to you and to me, as much as Hollywood wants to sell you that. Remember I told you when I was preaching on Romans 13, 1 to 7, I did a Google search of revenge movies, and my computer blew up. I mean, you know, there was that one category of the 100 best revenge movies. Like, wait, there's a list telling me what the top 100 
vengeance movies are. The Sixth Commandment does not include that, nor does it include self-defense. Exodus 22, 2, just another page further. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. You're lying in bed at night. You hear somebody jiggling the door. They come in. You defend yourself. That person dies. You are not guilty of murder. The Sixth Commandment also does not include just war. For lack of a better expression, it's an oxymoron, just war. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 to 18. This I won't take the time to read, but if you can, you can go there, you can look. In the ancient Near East, God justified certain reasons for his nation to take up arms against another. Some of you in the room have read about just war theory. Some of you in the room may be pacifistic. Some of you may be somewhere else on that continuum. But what the sixth commandment, according to the ancient Near Eastern standards that God laid out for his people, the sixth commandment is not violated when a nation or state carries out God-ordained justice or self-defense or a just war. And that's about as snarly as it gets when you try to determine whether or not a war is just. As you know, everything, everything that goes into play there in terms of how everybody and his brother wants to define just as in justice, a war of justice. What the Sixth Commandment does include, okay, I'm going to pivot here a little bit, still under the but first category, but what the Sixth Commandment does include, and this, this, gets, this gets a little, this gets bumpy here. It gets bumpy in the sense that it not only applies to the individual, but now it's going to start applying more corporately. We have to ask ourselves, is it possible for a church collectively to violate the Sixth Commandment? Is it possible for the state of New York collectively to violate the Sixth Commandment? Is it possible for the United States? Is it possible for Afghanistan? Is it possible for Australia? You fill in the blank. Is it possible for a nation corporately to violate the Sixth Commandment? Does it apply? I want to argue it does. And watch how I think it so quickly supports what I'm about to say. The Sixth Commandment does include abortion. Aborting a human being in a mother's womb is an act of murder. Now, I am wide-eyed to the electricity that comes to some, with some of these some of these hot buttons. I'm well aware of that. And I don't have the time to get into all of it. But it would be unloving of me to zip past these kinds of things without at least putting them out in front of you to provoke your thinking, to give thought to how you ought to pray, not only for your own life, but also for your nation's life. Because I would stand before you right now and declare that the United States of America has blood on her hands. Because every year, millions of children in the United States are aborted. We will give an account for that. It is murder. We're not the only nation, obviously, but we are a nation. We are citizens of that nation, and therefore we ought to do due diligence with regard to what our role is in that as an individual as well as a church, which is why forever and a day this church will be a supporter of the Pregnancy Care Center. 
and why Mr. Kleinau has dedicated more than a quarter of a century of his life to that cause. The Sixth Commandment does include, on the other end of the spectrum, euthanasia. Euthanasia is not a young people's missionary movement. Youth in Asia. I don't mean to be crass. Euthanasia is the taking of a life, particularly an older life, because they are, quote-unquote, no longer productive participants, participants in society. I'm looking in the back of the room, I'm gonna cry. I'm looking in the back of the room and I'm seeing one, one gentleman and his wife sitting there who has cared for a beloved mother till she was near 100 years old. Filled with dementia, Alzheimer's. Certain people would look at that situation and say, why are we spending the money to keep this person alive? Is it even a person? I'm here to tell you the San Marcos will tell you that Rose San Marco was a person until the Lord decided it was time for her to go. Is that okay? Is that okay? All right. And so, too, you and me. Now, the advancements in technology create all kinds of struggles for us. How long do you keep a person alive? Because you've got the technology to do it. Those are things that are a little bit aside for what we're doing right now. I simply want to make the point that the Sixth Commandment does include the sin of euthanasia. And again, come all the way back to where I started. Genesis 1 and 2 is fueling this argument right now. Understanding what it means to be created in the image of God. That even if a person has to be fed, even if a person has no longer advanced cognitive function, does not mean that they have been reduced outside of the image of God. The Sixth Commandment also does include bodily harm. And this is where it expands what Jen Wilkins calls exp expansive obedience. The way we work, believe it or not, can violate the Sixth Commandment. The way we do or don't rest, exercise, the proper care for our bodies. Are we killing ourselves? with the way that we eat, with the care that we take or don't take of our bodies. It's provocative to give thought to. The things we eat, the things we drink, the things we smoke raises really provocative question about whether or not, understanding the spirit of the sixth commandment, whether or not it leads to death. Paul seems to have a little bit to say about that. First Corinthians chapter six, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple? Why would you unite it, unite it with a prostitute? And by extension, he's saying, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price. Are you caring for your body or are you not? And for us, we're called to care for our bodies, not so that we can make covers of magazines, not so that we can even live to be 100 years old, and that whole rage that's in the midst of our culture right now, but so that we would be fit vessels for service in the kingdom. That's why I try to eat right. That's why I try to sleep right. That's why I try to exercise, so that I will have the energy to do this. Think about it. I exercise because I love you. 
I eat right because I love you. Okay, so let's take up, and, and they're brief. Once you set the table like that, it's, it's brief from this point on out. So let's now take the two questions. First, what, what does it forbid? And by this point in time, I hope you've listened carefully enough, and you can actually fill in the blank. You basically can write this back half right here. So what, what does the Sixth Commandment forbid? In a word, it forbids contempt. The Sixth Commandment forbids contempt. Westminster Confession of Faith, to which I referred last week, Shorter Catechism, question number 69, teaches us this. It's beautiful. I'm so glad God deposited our, the teaching of our forefathers for us to continue to be blessed by. Question 69 in the Shorter Catechism says that the Sixth Commandment forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tends thereunto. Now, that's good 16th, 17th century old English right there. My wife and I wrestled for a few minutes last night to get a definition of the word thereunto. And believe it or not, it's a little difficult to find. So here's the paraphrase. Sixth commandment forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of another of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tends thereunto. That is, anything that might lead to the willful death of another person. That's all that that means. It's a brilliant little expression because what it does, it, it expands the understanding of what the commandment is really all about. Because in that culture, people would go, I don't own a gun. I don't own a club. I don't own any weapon of destruction. Haven't killed anybody this week. I have kept the sixth commandment. Now wait till we get to Matthew chapter five and Jesus says, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute, you're not off the hook that way. See, what I push against in my teaching on the Ten Commandments is this minimalistic approach. Minimalism for the Christian is an abomination. What's the minimum I need to do to get in? What's the minimum I need to do to stay in? What's the minimum that I need to do in order to keep the Ten Commandments? Don't murder somebody. Okay, I got that. There's probably, I don't know, I hope, there's not a person in this room that's ever murdered somebody. There are two levels here that I want to give you, and I'm going to tell you in advance right now. This might bring tears here. I, I, I'm just going to give you a heads up on this because this, this comes right smack to my core. Because I, I lived this for years in my counseling. There are two levels. There are two levels to what the Sixth Commandment forbids. Level one is physical. It's external. It's the taking of my own life. Suicide is a sin. It's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. But let me say this, pastorally, because I get asked regularly, or I have to step into people's lives and correct assumptions that, in fact, this just happened two weeks ago, literally two weeks ago, in an interview. We were talking about some ethics, and a person did not say directly, but very clearly inferred that suicide was a mortal sin, and you would automatically go to hell. Let's be clear here. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. It's horrible, horrible. 
former professor of mine wrote a book because his child had taken her own life, wrote a book called The Fierce Goodbye. But suicide is not the unpardonable sin. So you are not automatically condemned. Just like if you were to take another human's life, even with willful intent, it does not mean you're beyond the pale of grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin, including murder. It's level one is the physical, it's the external, what I do outside take my own life or the life of another, both of whom are created in the image of God, and any and all physical abuse leading to death or not. You see what I'm saying? And this is where it starts to get to the bone because I've had too many couples sit in my offices over the years who have been guilty of abusing one another, yes, even physically. And sitting before me, live and in color, are violators of the Sixth Commandment. It's not easy to watch. It's not easy to navigate when you see the depths of the human heart. So physical abuse of any sort, whether it leads to death or not, is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Level two is internal. It's the whoso whatsoever tends thereunto. These are the things that lead up to that, but in the heart reveals the motive, which is what we're going to look at in closing here in just a few minutes. Level two is the non-physical. It's internal, and by this I mean, and watch everybody in the room start to nod their head right now, because this is a lot of the domestic violence stuff that comes out, because, you know, the proverbial sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me is the biggest lie you're ever going to be asked to buy. Ever. The number of people that have emptied boxes of tissues in my rooms over the years because they've been verbally assaulted repeatedly by a loved one makes me impassioned and do exactly what I'm doing right now. Emotional, psychological, verbal abuses are all violations of the Sixth Commandment. Gaslighting, which is the rage nowadays, is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Creating a narrative such that your loved one or another one in your close sphere thinks that they're losing their minds, that's what gaslighting is, is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Why? And some of the language that I use repeatedly is that it shrinks the soul. It shrinks the soul. Keep coming back full circle with me. It violates image bearers. And so anger, listen to me now, please. Anger, I've got your attention now. Anger, envy, objectification, oppression, Racism, revenge, shaming, all of these things lead to the shrinking of the soul of which we speak, and it reduces the image bearer. 
violations of the Sixth Commandment. I've been pointing out to you along the way that it isn't just here that God lets it be known that this is what he expects of his people. In Leviticus 19, for example, Leviticus 19, 17 to 18, we have a, a repeat of this, an application of this. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall, here it is, love your neighbor as yourself, and then here it really is, I am the Lord. So the Lord in his community is telling people that you are not to hate one another, that you are not to bear a grudge against one another, that you are not to take vengeance against one another. It's a violation of the moral will of God. And he declares his lordship over that. Isn't that amazing? The Lord declares his lordship over his people such that if you're in a relationship or have been in a relationship and you've been belittled verbally, emotionally, psychologically, you have been reduced by that person. God desires to bring healing to your wounded soul, which may never close. And let it be known for those of you in the room who have been on the receiving ends of these kinds of things, the Lord has taken note. And I, with all the gentleness that the Spirit of God can provide me in this moment right now, plead with you not to double down and seek your revenge. I'm coming on near 30 years in ministry. I literally, and I tell people this, I literally beg God in my DV counseling that this will be the last couple. And heretofore, he has not been satisfied to answer that prayer. You cannot, you cannot do this kind of counseling and not be permanently marked seeing the amazing power that words have upon an image bearer. I quote the Leviticus passage because I think it's a fairly clear line that this is what Jesus had in his mind when in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we have one of those Jesus moments. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Amen. We're agreed with this. Here's Jesus now coming at, coming at the minimalistic approach. And Jesus said to those who are sitting there listening to his teaching, thinking, if you have not murdered somebody, literally not killed somebody, and you think you're pretty good okay, Jesus says, hold on a minute. Verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, try to imagine how much squirming is going on right now. Because here are these people for their entire lives have thought that they're keeping this commandment because they've never taken another life. And now Jesus is, is upping the ante and saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did I hear you clearly? If I'm angry with a brother, I'm guilty of murder? 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Watch this now. Watch this. Relationships in the body of Christ are so important to God that in this passage, if I'm reading it correctly, and I think that I am, reconciliation with a brother is more important than worship. God says, press pause on your worship if you've got a problem with a brother. I don't want your worship. If you've got a revengeful heart, if you've got a heart that's filled with anger, press pause, go take care of business, and then come back. The early church got this. Jesus' half-brother James, in James 4.2, said it bluntly, like he says so much bluntly, your desire, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, I don't think James is meaning that you're all walking around with a sword lopping off people's heads because you're not getting what you want. James knows the inner workings of the heart. He knows what his brother taught. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. See, this is the connection to envy. Envy is going to lead to some sort of attack on another. And that is an act of murder in the New Covenant economy. Not just James, but John himself. 1 John 3.15. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. These are blunt words. I mean, there's no sugarcoating here. There's no asterisk. There's no Dead Sea Scroll that has a back door. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, question your faith if you can hold a grudge for a really long time. If you're still vengeful, look in the mirror and ask yourself, is God the Holy Spirit at work in your life or is he not? Because those things are contrary to the will of God. And you stand, if I'm reading this correctly, in direct violation of commandment number six. So what does the Sixth Commandment require? It's the reverse side of this. You've, you've, you're trained enough now to know how this goes. So if it forbids contempt, it requires compassion. Back to the shorter catechism. This is this question before the prior one. This is question 68. Sixth Commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve, preserve our own life and the life of others. In other words, do what you need to do in order to keep yourself alive and to cause your neighbor to flourish. And so you ask yourself, how is my life currently structured so that I'm reaching out to the other and not just not killing them, but trying to do what I can to enhance their life with the end goal of leading them to Jesus? Give me a, give me a verse on that, Pastor. I will. Thanks for asking. In other words, before this, in other words, Sixth Commandment requires of me an intentionality, 
an intentional compassion, an intentionally compassionate approach to my neighbor that will enrich her life, that will reveal Christ to her. Am I keeping the sixth commandment? I don't know. Am I displaying Christ to my neighbor? My neighbor might be my wife. My neighbor might be my neighbor. My neighbor might be my coworker. My neighbor might be the one sitting on the other side of the room that I really rather not talk to because, well, you know, it's them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is what Paul says. Here, here you go, nail it down. 1 Corinthians 10, 24, Paul says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And then in verse 33, he says that they may be saved. That's good. Oh man, is that good. 1 Corinthians 10, 24 and 33. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, that they may be saved. That's how you keep the sixth commandment. You, I hope, are reasonably familiar with this passage that I've already preached out of Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, 8 to 10, sums it up like this as we wind down. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Did you get that? Loving your neighbor fulfills the Ten Commandments. Ooh, that's good. Romans 13, verse 8. Now verse 9. For the commandments, listen, listen please. You shall not commit adultery. God willing, that's next week. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. That's two weeks. You shall not covet. That's four weeks. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. <laughs> in other words, Paul's saying the back half of the Ten Commandments is all summed up in loving your neighbor. That's all I'm doing right here for the next past couple of weeks and for the next four weeks. All I'm going to do is say to you, love your neighbor. And I'm going to say, here's the angle of loving your neighbor right now. Love your neighbor. I close with this question. I'm wrestling with the question. You're wrestling with the question. Because each and every one of us has violence in his or her heart. There's not a person in the room that is utterly lacking violence in their heart. I joke about it regularly. Traffic. Traffic. And I mean this with a very straight face. Traffic is a tool that God uses to expose the darkness that's in my heart. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. I'm still not laughing. Because my wife will tell you she has too many firsthand experiences of my desire to murder people because I haven't gotten what I wanted when stuck in traffic. What is God using in your life to expose you? It might be your spouse, who you think is nothing more than a dripping faucet. It might be your neighbor who plays music too loud at the wrong time of day. It might be your coworker who's nothing but a pain in the neck. So the question is this, how do I then move from contempt to compassion? 
Two things. First, remember that our problem is internal. This is not, this is not advanced behavior modification. Those of you in education know exactly what I mean. I think it's fairly self-explanatory. Conversion in the Christian faith is not, is not behavior modification. The law alters behavior. Just around the bend of where I live, there's a camera. That's the law. I come around the bend, and the camera is ready to take my picture if I'm doing more than 25 miles an hour. So I don't do more than 25 miles an hour. The law has altered my behavior. But it has done nothing to convert me. Jesus didn't come, hear me, Jesus did not come to make you a better version of you. Jesus came to raise the dead. To make a new you. Not a polished up version of the old you. But to make sure that you died. And then together with him up from the grave you arose. So first, we have to remember that the problem is internal. Jesus says in Mark 7, 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. What comes out of a person defiles him. 21, Mark 7, for, for from within, out of the heart of man come these things, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So we have to make peace with the fact that in order to move from contempt to compassion, we have an internal problem. Because we're really good at window dressing. Each and every one of us in this room, including the big kahuna standing in front of you right now, is really good at putting forth the best face. We have PhDs in this. How you doing? Just great. And on the inside, you're dying. The problem is internal. Yeah, I want to see your behavior changed, but I want your heart to change first, and then the behavior is going to follow. I won't worry about that. But I don't jump up and down automatically because, oh, they're not smoking anymore. Oh, they're not cussing anymore. Well, there might be a thousand one reasons for that. It has nothing to do with God. So first, we've got to make peace with the fact that our problem in moving from contempt to compassion is internal. So we pray, God, do a work in my heart. Like David prayed in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. Secondly, we're done. Our solution, therefore, must also be internal. And you hear internal, you should automatically think sanctification. You should automatically think Holy Ghost power. And that's why I took a second or two at the introduction of our service today to talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit that's going to move you from contempt to compassion. No, no other person will do that. No self-help book. No other TV preacher. No other beloved counselor. They might be agents in God's hand, God's hand. But the only one that's going to move you from contempt to compassion is the Holy Ghost. So we pray. Spirit of the living God, take out my heart of flesh and convert me again 
We talk about that a lot. There's a capital C conversion that we go through when we come to Christ. And then the rest of our life is given over to a series of lowercase c conversions. Every day I ask the Lord to convert me to his ways. So we yield to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the work that enables us to love our neighbor, the work that enables us to obey the sixth commandment. And this is where I'm going to leave you. I, I, I pray some of you are already gone there. You know I'm looking for Galatians. You know I'm looking for Galatians chapter 5. You know I'm going to read you in closing Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. There you go. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't murder. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed to one another, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Verse 18 of Galatians 5, but if you are led by the Spirit, watch this now, you're not under the law. You're free. You're free. No works righteousness in this house. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. You might include murder, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then... Praise be to God Almighty, there's a but. Galatians 5.22, but. The fruit of the Spirit. And here's what I'm going to do as, as I close. I'm going to ask you, in this very familiar passage, I'm going to ask you to pick two. I'm going to ask you before God to pick two and to ask him, to cultivate this fruit in your life. Lord, I'm angry. Please give me this. Lord, I'm envious. Please give me this. Lord, I want to murder this person. Please give me this. Okay, you with me? We're done. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. I need patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, the flesh is outside. It's insidious. It's like a prisoner who's been released from prison, but who now turns around and bangs on the door wanting to get back in. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. How do I move from contempt to compassion? 
I plead with the Lord to cultivate within, within my spirit his Holy Ghost fruit. This is the only work that will enable you to love your neighbor. This is the only work that will enable you to obey the sixth commandment. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word. We thank you that it instructs us. That it holds up for us. The people created in your image that we are called to be. And we cannot do it. It's exactly the power of Jesus' words is to leave us with our hands in the air, crying, help me. And Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and light. Would you, not only individually, but corporately, Father, move us from contempt to compassion, that we might not only obey your commandment, but we might know the joy that comes in walking by faith to the praise and glory of the one who came to fulfill all ten and did so perfectly for us in his name. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.